Section 14 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The World's Story, Volume 15, The World War. Edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 14. The Retreat from Mons, 1914, by a British Staff Officer. The first British expeditionary force left England for France during the early weeks of August, in command of Sir John French. By August 22nd, the forces were gathered for action, and on the 23rd, three army corps extended along a 25-mile front east and west of Mons, a Belgian town of 25,000 inhabitants. The battle began that day and continued until it became clear that the British were greatly outnumbered and must retreat to escape annihilation. The retreat lasted 12 days, during which there were constant forced marches day and night and incessant rearguard actions. The Editor The general situation in this region, as it was known at the moment to the leaders of the Allies, may be briefly stated. It was at last plain, after much uncertainty, that the first great shock and collision of forces was destined to take place in this northern area. It was plain, also, that Belgium, for some time to come, was out of the scheme. Liège had fallen, and with it how many hopes and predictions of the engineer. Brussels was occupied, and the Belgian field army was retiring to shelter under the ramparts of Antwerp. Except for Namur, there was nothing in Belgium north of the Allied line to stop the German advance. Von Kluck and von Bülow, with the first and second German armies, were marching without opposition toward the French frontier von Kluck toward the southwest and von Bülow toward the crossings of the Sambre. By the evening of the 20th, von Bülow's guns were bombarding Namur. So much was known to the leaders of the Allies. Of the strength of the advancing armies, they knew little. The line occupied by the British ran due east from the neighborhood of Condé along the strait of the Condé-Mons Canal, round the loop which the canal makes north of Mons, and then, with a break, patrolled by cavalry, turned back at almost a right angle toward the southeast of the direction of the Mons-Beaumont Road. The whole of the canal line, including the loop round Mons, a front of nearly 20 miles, was held by the 2nd Army Corps, and the 1st Army Corps lay off to its right, holding the southeastern line to a point about 9 miles from Mons. There being no infantry reserves available in this small force, General Allenby's cavalry division was employed to act on the flank, or in support of any threatened part of the line. Throughout the Saturday, our men entrenched themselves, the North Countrymen among them finding in the chimney stacks and slag heaps of this mining district much to remind them of home. The line they held was clearly not an easy line to defend. No salient ever is, and a glance at the map will show that this was no common salient. To the sharp apex of Mons was added, as an aggravation, the loop of the canal. It was, nevertheless, the best line available, and once adopted, had been occupied with that double view, both to defense and to attack, which a good commander has always before him. The attack had most certainly begun, and it began, as was expected, at the weakest and most critical point of the line, the canal loop, which was held by the 3rd Division. This division had the heaviest share of the fighting throughout the day, maintaining, longer than seemed humanly possible, 
a hopeless position against hopeless odds, the second Royal Irish and fourth Middlesex of the Eighth Brigade, and the fourth Royal Fusiliers of the Ninth Brigade, particularly distinguishing themselves. The bridges over the canal, which our men held, after some preliminary shelling, were attacked by infantry debouching from the low woods, which at this point came down to within three hundred or four hundred yards of the canal. These woods were of great assistance to the enemy, both here and at other points of the canal, in providing cover for their infantry and machine guns. The odds were very heavy. One company of the Royal Fusiliers, holding the Nimi Bridge, was attacked at one time by as many as four battalions. The enemy at first came on in masses and suffered severely in consequence. It was their first experience of the British 15 rounds a minute, and it told. They went down in bundles, our men delighting in a form of musketry never contemplated in the regulations. To men accustomed to hitting bobbing heads at 800 yards, there was something monstrous and incredible in the German advance. They could scarcely believe their eyes. Such targets had never appeared to them, even in their dreams, nor were our machine guns idle. In this, as in many other actions that day and in the days that followed, our machine guns were handled with a skill and devotion which no one appreciated more than the enemy. The attack had now spread along the whole line of the canal, but except at the loop, the enemy could make no impression. There, however, numbers told at last, and about the middle of the afternoon, the 3rd Division was ordered to retire from the salient, and the 5th Division on its left directed to conform. Bridges were blown up, the Royal Engineers vying with the other services in the race for glory, and by the night of the 23rd, after various vicissitudes, the 2nd Army Corps had fallen back as far as the line montreuil vaz paturage Framaris. That the retirement, though successful, was expensive is not to be wondered at, when it is remembered that throughout this action, as we now know, the 2nd Army Corps was outnumbered by three to one. All ranks, however, were in excellent spirits. Allowing for handicaps, they felt that they had proved themselves the better men. It was a feeling which was to be severely tried in the next few days. At 5 p.m. on Sunday the 23rd, as the 2nd Corps was withdrawing from the canal, the British Commander-in-Chief received a most unexpected telegraph from General Joffrey, the Generalissimo of the Allied armies, to the effect that at least three German Army Corps were moving forward against the British front and that a fourth corps was endeavoring to outflank him from the west. He was also informed that the Germans had, on the previous day, captured the crossings of the Sambre between Charleroi and Nemour, and that the French on his right were retiring. In other words, Nemour, the defensive pivot of the Anglo-French line, on the resistance of which, if only for a few days, the Allied strategy had depended, had fallen almost at a blow. By Saturday, the Germans had left Namur behind, and in numbers far exceeding French predictions, had seized the crossings of the Sambre and Middle Meuse, and were hammering at the junction of the 5th and 4th French armies in the River Fork. The junction was pierced, and the French, unexpectedly and overwhelmingly assaulted both in front and flank, could do nothing but retire. By 5 p.m. on the Sunday, when the message was received at British headquarters, the French had been retiring for anywhere from 10 to 12 hours. The British Army was, for the moment, isolated. Standing forward a day's march from the French on its right, faced and engaged by three German corps in front, and already threatened by a fourth corps on its left, it seemed a force marked out for destruction. 
In the British Higher Command, however, there was no flurry. There is a thing called British phlegm. The facts of the case, though unwelcome, were laconically accepted. Over general headquarters brooded a clubroom calm. Airmen were sent up to confirm the French report in the usual manner, and arrangements were quietly and methodically made for a retirement toward the prearranged Maubuge Valenciennes line. It had been intended by the British commander-in-chief to make a stand on the Maubuge line, and if the first calculations of the enemy's strength and intentions had proved correct, it is possible that a great battle might have been fought here, and continued by the French armies along the whole fortress line of northern France. Even as it was, the temptation to linger at Maubuge must have been strong. It offered such an inviting buttress to our right flank, and filled so comfortably that dangerous gap between our line and the French. The temptation, to which a weaker commander might have succumbed, was resisted. Early on the 25th, accordingly, the whole British army set out on the next stage of its retreat. Its function in the general Allied strategy was now becoming clear. It was not merely fighting its own battles. Situated as it was on the left flank of the retiring French armies, it had become in effect the left flank guard of the Allied line, committed to its retirement and to the protection of that retirement to the end. The turning movement from the West, at first local and partial, had suddenly acquired a strategic significance. It threatened not merely the British army, but the whole Allied strategy of retreat. Could the British resist it? Could they, at the least, delay it? These were the questions which the French leaders asked themselves with some anxiety. As they retired with their armies from day to day and waited for the counter-turn which was to come, for, as we now know, behind the retiring and still intact French armies, to the south and east of Paris, movements were shaping, forces were forming, which were to change the face of things in this western corner. The crisis of the retreat was now approaching. There's a limit to what men can do, and it seemed for a moment as if this limit might be reached too soon. The commander-in-chief, seriously considering the accumulating strength of the enemy, the continued retirement of the French, his exposed left flank, the tendency of the enemy's western corps to envelop him, and above all the exhausted and dispersed condition of his troops, decided to abandon the Le Cateau position and to press on the retreat till he could put some substantial obstacle, such as the Somme or the Oise, between his men and the enemy, behind which they might reorganize and rest. He therefore ordered his corps commanders to break off whatever action they might have in hand and continued their retreat as soon as possible toward the new San Quentin line. The first corps was by this time terribly exhausted, but on receiving the order set out from its scattered halting places in the early hours of the 26th. That the day was critical, that it was all or nothing, was realized by all ranks. Everything was thrown into the scale. Nothing was held back. Regiments and batteries with complete self-abandonment faced hopeless duels at impossible ranges. Brigades of cavalry on the flanks boldly threatened divisions, and in the half-shelter of their trenches, the infantry, withering but never budging, grimly dwindled before the German guns. It was our first experience on a large scale of modern artillery in mass. For the first six hours, the guns never stopped. To our infantry, it was a time of stubborn and almost stupefied endurance, broken by lucid intervals of that deadly musketry which had played such havoc with the Germans at Mons. To our artillery it was a duel, 
and perhaps of all the displays of constancy and devotion in a battle where every man in every arm of the service did his best the display of the gunners was the finest for they accepted the duel quite cheerfully and made such sport with the enemy's infantry that even their masses shivered and recoiled by midday however many of our batteries were out of action and the enemy infantry had advanced almost to the main cambrai lacato road behind which our men in their pathetic civilian trenches were quietly waiting end of section 14 this recording is in the public domain